Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to episode 11 of The Real Time Show with me, your host, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and my co-host calling in all the way from Amsterdam, Alon Ben-Joseph. How are you this fine and sunny morning, my friend? I'm very well. I'm very happy to hear you on the other side of the mic. Um, it has been a blast. We've been now on air for a month plus. I want to thank all our listeners for A, listening, and B, for all the feedback you gave us, both constructive criticism, compliments, and most importantly, sending in those questions, because that's what I enjoy a lot. And that's what today's episode is going to be dedicated to. Of course, it's another one of our question and answer sessions in which we mine through our mailbag for some of the most interesting queries you've posed to us in the recent days. And Alon, you've got some nice ones from very near my homestead. So why don't you start us off with a guy going by the name Nomoshino. Very nice. Moritz is a great guy, a watchmaker. Ironically, he works at a Lange Söhne. Nice. But he adores Nomos, and that's why his Instagram handle is Nomos Chino. Definitely make sure to check it out. It's at N-O-M-O-S-C-H-I-N-O, because he makes custom-made watch straps by himself and sells them as a side gig. Very cool. Um, he's very enthusiastic. He, he actually listens to us, to every episode, while he's working on the bench. Nice. So thank you for that, Moritz. Um, he's sending actually loads of questions. So let me read out the first one. He asks both of us, when did the idea pop up to record a weekly podcast together? Because you two live in different countries, so your contact has to be really strong over the years. And then he continues, but let's let's just... Um, answer this one Rob do you want to take it uh yeah sure sure um thanks for the question Moritz I've just been checking out your Instagram page while Alan was reading the question and uh, I have to say you got some nice photography on there really smart really nice atmospheric shots of oh I I tell you what I've just spotted a couple of Fratello Velt sites that I happen to have designed huh wow that's cool okay huh all right. Well, thanks for supporting us in all of our endeavors, as it would seem. Very much appreciated. To answer your question, Alon and I have known each other since 2016, I think. It was my first Basel World when I was working as the, um, what would you call me at the time, key account manager for the UK and Ireland and soon to be Netherlands for Nomos Glasseter. And Alon and I had a meeting with Dala, Alon's colleague. And to me, the fact they weren't already a dealer for Nomos was absolute nonsense. And I think I made that quite clear to you, Alan, at the time. And it wasn't much of a negotiation. I just got clearance from the relevant parties to bring them on board. And that's what we did. We started working together then. And we pursued our first special edition Nomos together in 2017 to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the style art movement, most commonly uh, communicated through the works of Piet Mondrian, and ever since we've remained friends, I left Nomos in 2000 and when was it? 19? 18? I can't remember. And we worked together. We've stayed in touch ever since. I mean, I, I worked freelance for a year and 
we saw each other intermittently throughout that year. And then I joined Fratello first as their managing editor. And of course, I went on to manage the partnerships and take care of their special edition releases from 2020 and 2021 and most of the stuff we've done in 2022. And being a Dutch company, we were obviously still very close. And I was always looking for ways to bring Alon into the Fratello family. And uh, I was hoping that the Fratello family could benefit from Alon's experience in the retail sector as we attempted to move into that forum ourselves. And I don't know, man, we've just been, we just hit it off straight away, didn't we? Why don't you give your, your side of the story? Well, yeah, we clicked from day one and you did help indeed because we were requesting a Nomos dealership for over a decade before we met actually. And I literally stalked every email address, phone number and person that I could find at Nomos Glasute. And in the end, by I guess sheer luck, Martina saw my email and said, oh, let's get it over with. So Martina granted us a visit and hell, there we found you sitting there with Martina and with Dala indeed, which is co-owner of Watchbase and my colleague at Ace Jewelers, who is a walking watch encyclopedia and also a nomos nut because he runs minimatical.com, which I want to use as a bridge because apparently Moritz started an Nomos Encyclopedia, which I, sorry to say, I forgot the name, but we'll give a shout out in future episodes um, because I need to look it up. But um, yeah, we hit it off. Uh, Love for watchmaking, love for Nomos, um, and just same sense of humor, I guess, and and the quirkiness. So why did we start this podcast? Because the stars aligned. We, as Rob said, interviewed each other. I have been multiple guests on podcast shows where Rob did the interview, of which mostly were Fratello. He interviewed me also in writing, so for articles for Fratello. He has been on our podcast show at Ace Jewelers. He's been on the live stream of the Ace List. So we actually have a lot of fun together and it goes organically and natural. So... Both of us were walking around with the idea to start a new watch podcast program, series, platform, call it whatever you want. Since I guess both of us are very apolitical, we don't do PC, political correctness, and we always say what we think, we immediately landed at the name The Real Time Show, didn't we, Rob? Yeah, that didn't take us very long at all. And the vision was united from the get-go. And it was just really, we talked about it for ages, really. Um, But it was about finding the moment. And when I decided to leave Fratello and go out on my own, we had that freedom to connect and start our own platform, as you say. And hopefully it will grow into watchmaking's biggest and most interactive podcast and i think that we're the right guys to head up that kind of movement because of course we are very connected to the grassroots of watch fandom you're the founder of red bar amsterdam and i'm a co-founder of red bar manchester and we love the the atmosphere in those in those community groups and i hope that we can build our own and also you know spread it around the red bar network as well so that people become more and more aware of the real-time show and uh 
we go from there. Who knows what else we could do with brands in the future as well? We're not going to become a commercial entity, I don't think. You'll you not likely see us making watches for profit, but you never know what could be up our sleeves and around the corner. Exactly. And he continues, Moritz, by asking, and how many times have you spoken about your concepts? How many effort and brain work went into the idea until you've decided to come up with it? So we half address that topic. I guess not so much. We are both very much learned by doing. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and since this is a true passion project, we have no idea if we want to monetize it and if we do how we're going to do it. We enjoy doing this and we'll see where things lead. Right, Rob? Yeah, well, I've got a few ideas of how I could monetize it, but um, I, not many of them are very attractive to me, to be honest, because what I enjoy most about uh, our relationship and what we're able to bring to the listeners is that impartiality and that frank, straight-talking style. We're polite, of course. We try to be. Uh, we're not particularly foul-mouthed, but we do occasionally launch into our tirades, especially especially me when I lose my temper or mind over some minute subject to the industry. Um yeah, we didn't discuss it a huge amount. We knew straight away when we raised the topic that it would be something we'd both like to do and, and something that we could just launch into because we have a good background in watchmaking. We complement each other, I think, quite nicely in terms of our knowledge bases. And yeah, we just sort of said, let's go, let's do it. Let's um, let's jump on the, the bucket bronco and see what happens. And, and And we would love to hear from you, our dear listeners. Well, where you want us to evolve this project into because the integral integral part of our concept is that 50% of the time we spend time with you so we use your questions we want feedback so every first part of the week we upload the Q&A sessions like this one and the second part of the week it's usually an interview with a key person in the watchmaking industry um so rob do you want to add something to that or should i finish the the third segment of mortis question oh no you can go ahead and do the third segment and i'm very impressed that you've broken it down so neatly into us so we can address each point of his question i'm, I'm really proud of you it really I'm, warms my I'm, heart i'm uh, to give you guys a bit of um inside information or a view backstage so those that know me, I'm very much a chatterbox. Rob is too, but he's a real media guy, and I'm not even an amateur. I literally don't know how to edit. I hardly prepare anything, and I do everything what I've done till now is a one-take shot. I don't edit anything. So Rob is coaching me behind the scenes how to become more of a professional journalist, let's say, by slicing up my questions into chunk bites, edible bites of questions and not <laughs> monologues of my question. Right, Rob? Yeah, and so, it's, it's brilliant Like because the direct questioning style just allows everybody to focus very clearly on the point at hand. And I think you get such more value out of your questions, which are always so rich and so detailed and so valuable to the listener and even to the person being questioned, because they're often questions they haven't been asked before. Sometimes if we string too many points together in one go, then we lose the opportunity to really dig into each of those nuances. And as I said in the past, and as I'll say again, I'm quite a detail-oriented guy, and I like to 
keep hold of those details as often as we can. So third part of Varich's question, go ahead. He continues in his lovely message. And how do you get informed so well in terms of watches? Because you both run a business, have a family with kids. That's a lot around. I, I guess he, he means that's a lot on a your lot plate. To, a lot to deal with, yeah. Yeah, a lot to deal with, a lot on your plate. But your knowledge is up to date, like you read the whole day, doing nothing next to it. That's amazing. So his question evolved into a comment feedback. Um, I, I understand what you mean to to summarize it. He says, how the hell do you juggle so many balls? And do you keep up with the pulse of the industry? So a hidden agenda for this podcast as well, that we're at the pulse of the beat because we talk to the industry leaders, both them and you guys, the listeners, the collectors. Because without you collectors, there is no industry. That's one of the formats. Um, but because it gives me energy, so I'll answer this one, Robin, then you take it. It gives me energy. I'm, I am a collector. I'm a watch nerd. I love what I do. That's the reason I'm still a retailer because I have a lot of other endeavors and, 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 and businesses. But I love it. I love to interact on a daily basis with watch collectors, with watches, and only in that chronological order, the brands. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's my answer. It gives me energy. And as long as it gives me energy, I'll keep on doing it. I mean, one of the simplest ways to answer that question is that we've both been in the industry for a long time. Alon's been, well, he was born into it and he's been working actively in it for the past, I don't even want to say how long, 25 years, shall we say, ballpark? It's been a while. Um, uh, really employed and working f- like part-time is since I'm 18. So okay. that's since, uh, that's, that's since 90. 35 years yep but but i've literally been crawling on the shop floor as a kid and wearing swatches before i could read time but yeah it but it could be a curse and it can be a blessing for me it turned out (laughs) as a blessing right because it could be put a lot of pressure on your shoulders or you have to fake the passion or you're not really interested but yeah um, yeah i suppose so i mean it's your experience is quite different from mine because i was born nowhere near the industry i the son of an academic, a geologist specifically, and a librarian turned homemaker. So I I'd never had any idea that watchmaking existed until I was about 17. And my girlfriend at the time got me a job working for H. Samuel on the high street in Manchester. And I just floated into the watch department and became the watch guy and started to study as is my wont. And I fell in love with the industry and I kept it in my mind that it was something I wanted to maybe pursue in later life. And when I got the opportunity in my 20s to train as a watchmaker after many years of applications and rejections for sponsorship, I took it with both hands and I worked at the bench. Firstly, I worked for the Swatch Group, so I worked for Omega and Blancpain, Rado, Tissot, Satina, Calvin Klein, even, you name it, Swatch, of course. And then I moved to Bremont and then I had the chance to take on a sales role with Nomos, which is not usually afforded to watchmakers. And I grabbed that as well because I realized that I would never have a better opportunity to parlay my experience into something more and something more international. I spent the next three years traveling the world, making great connections like, like Alon. And then I decided to go full-time into media. And 
I mean, that's a that's an education and a half in in the industry of watchmaking to see it from all sides, to see it behind the counter as a retailer, in front of it as a as a customer and as a retail trainer, and then as a watchmaker and then as a analyst. And goodness, um, I got a decent memory as well. Luckily, <laughs> let me jump in here. Um, a question for you. Yeah. I truly think that you're so good that I would call you a journalist. Do you consider yourself a journalist as well as a watchmaker? Actually, in, in, in fairness, I sort of consider myself a journalist first and a watchmaker second. Uh, when I discovered watchmaking, I fell in love with the industry before I knew where my place in it would be. And it took me a while to figure that out. And even as I was in the process of applying for my apprenticeship, I had in mind that I would become a writer about watchmaking. I was, I've been writing all my life. It, I, when I was a little boy, I, I used to have a typewriter and I would make a, a weekly newspaper for my family detailing the events around the house, which everyone found amusing. And I would illustrate it and, you know, type out a few copies and hand them around. And uh, I knew that I, I was a writer. It wasn't a question of wanting to be a writer or anything like that. It was a question of me continuing to sharpen the knife whenever I could and train and write every single day and get better because I was quite bad at it when I started. And um, that wasn't as disheartening as you might think, because I didn't realize how bad I was. It's only now looking back, I can see how far I've come, but it was in my mind that I would be a, a watchmaking writer and, uh, or a writer of watchmaking. I, I decided that that was the best way to be the best watchmaking journalist in the world to train to be a watchmaker. And I don't think anybody else has done it. And even if they have, I think there might be a couple of guys now after me that have taken up the pen after laying down the tweezers, but they certainly don't have the experience of the sales side of things as well. So I've been very fortunate, but I guess, you know, opportunities seem to come when you're the first to do something. You know, if you're uh, blazing a trail, as it were, then uh, you don't have any competition at the time. Nobody expects you to do anything. So the path is cleared. Guys, I don't know if Rob is a real good watchmaker. I've never seen his work and I've never seen him at the bench. I'm terrible. I guess he's terrible. good. I think he's good. But, 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 but um, I'm a better journalist. He's not, he, he's, he's not a Laurent, he's not a Laurent Ferrier, I guess. Otherwise, he would, he would. That's the point, actually. And I never was going to be. And I, I realized that relatively soon. Um, it, well, a couple of years into my career, I have quite a lot of uh, trouble with my hands uh, on a daily basis. I have chronic pain in my hands. So manipulating tools was always quite difficult and uncomfortable for me. And I realized that. The fact I'd already identified my route into media as a possible landing spot for me once I'd concluded my time at the bench was heartening. It was um, a comfort because I, I, I like to be really good at whatever it is that I do. And I knew that I wasn't going to be off the Vitalinen or Ferrier standard. And that was quite distressing. And I, I saw my, my friends, my peers like developing around me and we worked together very frequently uh, as we grew as watchmakers and I would design and make tools for them to execute jobs that I was manually unable to do. So I knew that I had a place, like I finished top of the class in horological theory in my year. I got the highest mark that anyone ever got in the British School of Watchmaking. And um, I believe that record still stands. Uh, but I finished bottom of the class in practical. To give you an idea, like that was, I, I knew that was my, my, uh, area of specialization was always going to be the theory. I even went to the uh, effort of creating a daily blog for the year that followed me in the course at the British School of Watchmaking, educating them on the technical side of things so that they understood what it was that their teachers were able to tell them how to put into practice so that when they came to the theory examination, they were all 
far better prepared than I was. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm not the best watchmaker in the world. I mean, in, in many ways, it's really exciting to know how difficult it is to excel in that field and to have come pretty close to that and to know some, some wonderful people who are able to do those magical things that keep us excited on a daily basis. On that topic, guys, I want to say that I knew Rob rather well, but now that, and we work together, right? Yeah. Um, but the funny thing is now that we've, we're alive for a month plus, we obviously been working a month before and I can confirm that he is really, really a perfectionist because behind, he seems very nice on the mic, right? <laughs> behind the scenes, guys, he's grilling me. He is tough as nails which I appreciate because I'm also very detail-oriented and he's a perfectionist and we really both want to elevate this project that we're working on right now to the best we can. And we love the feedback we get from you guys because it only elevates our game. We don't take it as negative criticism. So Moritz, thank you. I hope we answered all your questions. Um, and, and I can guess, I can summarize for both Rob and I, we literally dream watches every day right I, I we wake up with watches we go to sleep with watches it's 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 an i always call it a disease and there is no antidote yeah i have a, a i'm an obsessive kind of guy so i try and stay away from like new hobbies because i know what i'm like i, I love sport sport is my first love and uh watchmaking is uh the love i adopted as a late teenager adult and um yeah I know what I'm like, so that's enough for me. That's enough. We daily eat, breathe, sleep, watchmaking. And um, if my girlfriend hadn't been in the industry herself, I think the type of conversation topics I'm interested in having would be completely untenable. So she's able to engage. Obviously, she knows a lot about the industry as well. So she has to put up with it. But yeah, watches women and world sport. Can't beat it. Lovely. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> lovely. Yeah, no, it's, it's, lovely. <laughs> it's lovely. It's lovely. It's lovely. I, I, I wanted to say also that I was born into an industry. I admired those people like you who don't have the pedigree in the sense that it comes from home. Yeah. And they, they are naturally gravitated to what you I love these collectors the most. And I love to see their journey in collecting watches. And I love when they ask me for advice, either as a private person or obviously as a jeweler, I love to guide them. So I never project my views or what they should do. Like a psychologist, I hold up a mirror and ask the right question so they can find their own path. So that's what I like the most. Yeah, you know, and that lack of pedigree can actually sometimes be a bit of a problem when you're trying to break into the industry because I encountered quite a bit of resistance when I first transitioned from watchmaking to the media side of things in 2015. While I was working for Bremont, I took on a job working for a blog to watch. And it was under Ariel Adams that I was tutored and through him I learned a great deal about how to write about watches and generally had to be a media professional. So as we like to say in American football, I'm from his coaching tree. You know, it's nice. There are now guys that are from my coaching tree, guys at Fratello that I brought into the business and educated and took under my wing. And it's uh, the most gratifying thing. So I can see how this influence fans out, but not everybody was as accepting or welcoming or encouraging as Ariel was. And um, 
Yeah, uh, there was actually one person who must remain unnamed because I'm not entirely sure who it was even to this day who tried to sabotage me very early in my career by insisting that my job working for Bremont and my position as a journalist was a conflict of interest, which was a bit of a stretch because nobody on earth knew I worked for Bremont. I was just a faceless watchmaker in the background fiddling around with chronographs on a daily basis. So it didn't stick. There was a moment where I had to make a decision whether I would dig my heels in and say, no, I'm going to continue writing, even if it means losing my job at Bremont. And I did make that decision. And as it happened, I lost neither job. So yeah, um, it's interesting to hear where people come from when they're not born into the industry, because they all have different stories. They all have different challenges they've faced and many of them have overcome them and overcome multiple bumps in the road. And yeah, it's what makes it such a rich family, I think, and why it's always interesting to talk to people and understand exactly what the foundation of their love for watches is. All right, let's move on to another question because uh, we've done pretty well to get 35 minutes worth of content out of that first one. Lol. Um, We need to be a bit quicker. That's my bad. All right, this one comes in from Walter, Amsterdam. How close was I with the pronunciation there? Close enough? Almost, almost. You, um, and we need to work on your the style because you said it with <laughs> a hardcore German accent. And you said, uh, you said Piet as Piet, which is either Piet. Scandinavian or French. So we'll work on your Dutch next time. You're here. Yeah, I've, uh, <laughs> I've been spending a lot of time in Scandinavia this year. So I, I started to pick up a bit of Norwegian to go along with my German. And uh, it's, it's probably completely useless, but it is kind of funny um, to start twisting my pronunciation everything's a bit of a mess right now so sorry oh okay Walter Wouter Walter Wouter 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 okay Wouter avid watch collector great guy red bar Amsterdam crew member top dude yes he asks in your opinion what are the best marketing campaigns of the recent years and which ones have resulted in the best market activation. So, Alon, you are right on the front line of this. You see what brands do to engage their followers and attract new ones. So why don't you take this one from the top? Great question, Walter. Thank you so much. Um, Off the bat, I would say a lot of marketing sucks today in the watchmaking industry, personally. I'm both a marketeer. I'm a retailer. And I'm a consumer. I'm a consumer first and foremost, obviously. Especially when it comes to watches, the first thing I do is I look at it as a consumer. Do I want it? Yes or no? And then I continue. Does it sell? Doesn't it sell? Is it done well? Is it uh, value for money, etc.? Now, I still think, and I'm thinking this already for 40 years, the best watchmaking marketing campaign ever, because I assume Wouter means watch marketing and not best sneaker ad etc yeah i think we can make that assumption in luxury the best one ever is the beers with a diamond is forever plus a diamond's a girl's best friend that's in the luxury industry they take that one hands down but in watchmaking it's i believe and i think 80 percent agrees with me it's patek philippe you actually never own one you preserve it for the next generation right i still think that that marketing campaign never lost its cachet, its luster, its brilliance. Very valid and still today. Um, then after that campaign, I used to love the IWC campaigns with a great sense of humor. They are not 
that acceptable in today's world because they were rather chauvinistic. Example, they used to advertise a Portuguese chronograph automatic 3714, which was 41.9 millimeters. And they wrote, wiping windows is men's work, dot, up until 42 millimeters. That kind of stuff was funny. Obviously not okay today anymore. Today, their marketing campaigns, I find extremely boring. Sorry, Team Schaffhauser. I love you guys. But from Schaffhauser, I love Moser's campaign. Here we go. I knew this was coming. This was top of my list. Go ahead. Yeah, Moser. Moser, they're not replicating what IWC used to do. But the key ingredient is a sense of humor. Not taking yourself so serious. Because anything we do, all of us in the watch industry, is irrelevant besides one aspect. We're making art. The, the key ladies and gentlemen in this industry are artists. Not only those that create and design, but especially you watchmakers. And I mean you, Rob, and the whole army of artisans that not just make watches, components, or the finishing, because even a polisher is an artisan. I've, I've, I've spent an hour looking at six ladies in Grenchen at the Breitling factory. I can't wait to hear the end of this sentence. <laughs> Bending. Okay, go ahead. It's getting worse. The steel clasps of metal oh, bracelets. God. They've spent 15 to 20 minutes on each bracelet. That's art. Oh, God. It's done by hand. No machine or artificial intelligence can copy that because it's a feeling. So I'm, 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 I'm drifting away from the question. So for me today, best campaigns holistically are H. Moser and C. Sense of humor. They don't take themselves seriously. They have a message that they say, hey, Swiss made, the label shouldn't be played with. Um, they address important issues. They are slowly going to the sustainable route but I think not fast enough. So that's a point of uh, constructive criticism on my side. Um, and their marketing activation is also good because they have a whole blog besides their own website where they literally mock themselves almost. And think about the cheese watch they made and the Alpine watch that made fun of the Apple watch. Or it wasn't even making fun of. It was a wink. Um, making watches without logos. What a wink. Yeah. Amazing, no? Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. One of my favorites. One of my favorites. Yeah. And 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 um, and, and me, personally, I don't like influencer marketing. It's old wine in new bags because celebrity endorsement or product placements in Hollywood is almost the same. Me, personally, as a consumer, it doesn't do anything for me unless a hero of mine goes out and buys the watch and doesn't flaunt it on Instagram. Let me give you an example. I'm a huge fan of Uwerk for literally a quarter of a century because they exist 25 years now. From day one, they blew me away. Michael Jordan is my childhood hero. That's why I collect Air Jordan 1s, because the first time I saw him flying on TV, I was four years old. 
And what did I see in the air? His shoes. So that was laser engraved in my mind. When I recently saw him on a vague photo, and I obviously look at watches and sneakers these guys wear, I saw an Uric on his hand. So that was an unintentional marketing activation, if you know what I mean. That wasn't product placement. He went out to West Time, amazing jewelers in LA, California, and he bought it there. And he's a watch nut. He doesn't communicate that. Not a lot of people know he invested in Watchbox right now because he utterly loves watches. And that's my stop word, utterly. But I'll use it only <laughs> once, Rob, okay? Well done, well done. <laughs> the, coaching, the coaching Rob does, he says, watch out for your signal words. So, um, so yeah, and, and, and we did talk to the legendary Jean-Claude Biver in our first episode ever, and you addressed the point of James Bond. And the funny thing, that does resonate with me. So that's funny. So I'm contradicting myself. So I'll shut up now. While you're talking, Rob, you take the mic from me. I'll think about more examples. Okay, well, I think we're doing pretty good on this question, to be honest. There's there's quite a lot coming thick and fast. I'll say a couple of things. I made some notes. I'm taking it to a new level of professionalism. I actually wrote down some things while you were talking. H. Moser was going to be top of my list. You touched on it. You said it all perfectly. I agree 100%. That is how you do it these days, how you take the lead and how you retain the sense of humor that those older IWC and maybe Breitling ads would have had in a less, shall we say, sanitary era. Patek, yeah, you nailed it. Absolutely right. That is when it comes to a slogan about as good as they get. And what I find funny about that particular marketing campaign is that it's so old, it's become part of the furniture in the same way that an established model like the Nautilus or the Calatrava has. You don't even think about changing it. The idea is almost abhorrent. You're like, well, no, that's as integral to the Patek brand as the Calatrava club, as the Calatrava crosses. So that's an interesting thing because in some ways that kind of ties them and it isn't so much a problem in actual terms for Patek because it's exactly where they want to be tied, but it does tie them to the past. Talking of another brand that lives on its past and doesn't really do much in the modern day, that's Rolex. They're still the strongest market in power in the world, in my opinion, but they basically don't lift a finger. One of the nicest aspects of Rolex's marketing is that they use testimonies rather than ambassadors. And the idea is these are actually Rolex customers. I mean, I'm guessing it's total nonsense, but. Um, the idea is that they offer their uh, testimonial without being coerced in any way because they just simply believe in the brand. And it's the same vibe that Michael Jordan buying an overt out of his own pocket and wearing it because he likes it is, is actually cultivated in real life. Okay, so now on to some of the ones that I want to talk about. I think this is a funny one, okay? And obviously, we're very connected to Nomos, but what I've always respected about Nomos is its absolute adherence to its own design language. And for many, many years, Nomos refused to use human models in its press material. They did start that in 2017, I think, with the launch of the Aqua Collection. They actually got some people into a studio and did a rather nice and colorful photo shoot. But these are not celebrity ambassadors. In fact, Nomos uses quite a, should we say, racially diverse cachet of of models to market its models, which is <laughs> models to market its models, which actually works out really nicely because it's 
unusual actually in watchmaking to see non-white wrists in press photography. And it's very refreshing to see that, especially with a brand as adventurous, playful, and colorful as Nomos. And I think they've managed to integrate the use of live models into their visual campaigns very seamlessly. And it doesn't feel off-brand. It doesn't feel jarring. Now, if they turned up on the wrist of David Beckham, or that would look ridiculous. Um, so I wouldn't push Nomos in the direction of using celebrity ambassadors, but I would definitely push Nomos in the direction of being more experimental with the placement of their visual market material. And I said this when I worked for the company. We used to market Nomos watches in print media, Armband Durden, uh, QP Magazine, for example, the, the standard magazines that had existed for time immemorial and seemed to be completely sacrosanct. We would sign on the dotted line every year, like clockwork, sending thousands of euros the way of these magazines without thinking, could this money be spent better elsewhere? And I was asked at one point, never a good idea to ask me a question, um, but I was asked where I would put our marketing budget for the territories I was managing at the time. And I said, I would take every single penny and I would buy one billboard in Beijing airport because you want me to increase sales in Manchester and the Mancunian price, obviously the same as the rest of the British price, is higher than the European price, but can be lower for the Chinese market especially with the VAT deductions you're able to get when you're flying in from Beijing to Manchester, which at that time was a flight path that had just been up from once to three times a day. So I had my eye on airport traffic all around the world to figure out which destinations were going to be worth investing in, either home or abroad, to get the best sales boost uh, at the end of the day. So I think that if Nomos were to roll out its excellent on-brand consistent visual communication into more experimental fora they would experience success i don't see the point uh, of small watch brands advertising in watch media that may sound ridiculous but of all brands they're the ones that should be putting their money elsewhere big brands like tudor and rolex and patek they should be in watch media magazines because they're part of the furniture of that magazine and of the media industry. But small brands are only known by watch geeks and watch geeks spending seven or eight pounds on a print media magazine almost certainly already know that you exist. So you should advertise in something like the financial times or in wallpaper magazine or in auto trader or something along those lines. That was always my feeling. I think like paying lip service to print media when you're a small brand nowadays is, is a stretch too far. One brand I like with a, nice slogan is Fortis, Toolwatch Redefined. They've really taken that brand to new places under the leadership of Yup Philippe, the man that bought the company in 2018, I think. God, I always forget that. And he is a passionate watch lover, a Fortis wearer his entire life. And he came into the company with a lot of new ideas, a lot of energy, and together they have completely overhauled the range very successfully. But finally, the brand that you must really point to when it comes to successful activation is Tudor with its Born to Dare campaign. Now, I personally hate the way this has been executed because it seems very scattershot and like they've basically picked up any ambassador they, they can from Lady Gaga to David Beckham to the Kiwi rugby team. I don't get it. There's no consistency. 
but it's proof that it doesn't matter if you throw enough money at something because it is definitely sticking. Tudor's market share has exploded since it was relaunched. And you have to think that these visible ambassadors and the chatter that they inspire amongst the watch community and elsewhere has got something to do with that. So that's my answer. Give me your feedback. Wow, I made so many mental notes and uh, I want to rebuttal on everything. So let me try to work back chronologically. So Patek, you're 100% right. It's so iconic. It's as iconic as their 5711 Nautilus. Um, but what they did well, talking about activation, and that's what watchmaking is, it's emotions. And they connected on an emotional level. So that in that sense, they activated well. Does Patek do anything else marketing-wise? Two things I think they did brilliantly. They held out on their website a long time, made a good site, could use a update again. With Instagram, they took them forever. They announced, I believe, three fairs ago. I don't remember if it was Basel or Watches and Wonders or whatever it was. A press release that they made a Instagram handle was front page news in the watchmaking industry, which is crazy. But if you study their Instagram account, well, it's done the best. I think there's no better, more artistic, creative Instagram account out there. They post once a month. It's a quadrant. And every cube has multiple layers with video and etc. It's done very, very creatively. So kudos to them. And what I loved in the last three years on event level, the event that my friend Mike Tay from the Hourglass together with Patek did in Singapore. That was an, 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 an exhibition, an art museum exhibition. That was amazing. And, and f- it, it holistically fits with Patek. So I think that was a good marketing activation. So making it 360. Um, then you went on to Nomos, I think. I really loved their campaigns where they had the sailing boat cut from a watermelon and the sail was a watch or they made pilot goggles of two watches you remember that campaign yeah i remember that one yeah that was classic all those postcards are still in existence so yeah 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 so those were my top 10 now about rolex you're semi-right um but they do everything so and celebrity endorsement and they uh fund art they obviously support expeditions of explorers at first i didn't like their hashtag perpetual but after thinking about it it literally is what they are their watches are almost as perpetual as diamonds and obviously they write perpetual on every automatic movement so it fits them um you know what i think we should maybe consider doing a whole topic a whole episode on this topic because we can chat for hours. Walter, for now, I hope we answered your question and we would love to hear what you thought are the best campaigns in the market. Rob, should we try to squeeze in another one? Because we've been uh, on very long on only two. I think we have the capacity to get a couple more in if we're quick. We'll go for a short one first and 
I'm going to pose this one to you. It's from a mate of mine called Kieran Radcliffe. And he asks, what is the biggest watch fad you can't wait to see die? Watch is being treated as commodities. And that's happening right now. Prices are going down on uh, these, these, these crazy pieces and, and they've been hyped. And uh, I, I don't like it when watches are seen solely and only as a monetary value, as a commodity. And I don't like the fact that they're now chopping up watches in into a financial product called fractioning and then wrapped in a trendy wrapper of NFT. I, I, I don't like that. That's a fad I want to go. Yeah, nice. Short and sweet. Beautiful. Um, I will also be concise. What I don't like is this Rolex trickle-down fad where whatever Rolex do, everybody else, or well, certain brands in a certain sector imitate. The colored dials basically is still, still irking me, still annoying me after all this time. Seeing brands like Zinn, even Omega with their Aquaterra effort, Riser, Christopher Ward, you know, multiple colors. I think, yeah. man, be a bit more creative. You know, I know Rolex is doing its thing and everybody loves it, but that's Rolex's thing and it's doing it and everybody loves it for that reason. The color green is not why the Oyster Perpetual 36 with a green dial is cool. It's a combination of all of its elements. So taking that one thing is a bit blinkered in my opinion. I think you could just be more creative, be wilder, because there's not enough experimentation in entry-level watchmaking. You know, I'll point to a direct example of the sort of thing that should be done more, although I'm not sure I love it. I think it's pretty cool. It's a new model from 7th Friday that's been 3D printed. The case is wild. It looks like some monster from outer space a million miles away from copying Rolex. So kudos to them for trying something new and to trying to uh, reinvigorate a brand that has, over the last few years, been in the wilderness. Okay, one more question. This is a good one, actually, and it's uh, not the easiest one. It's from, um, oh, no, we had a question from Geron. I'm getting, I don't know. Yeroon. Jesus Yeroon. Christ. Okay, getting better. J- I mean, there was Yeroon. some throat action in there. Okay, uh, from The Hague. Uh, we had one from him last time out, but he obviously likes to stay engaged because this is good. What new watch complications and or technical innovations do you expect in the coming decade? Alon, take this one away. A little trend I've, I've been noticing. Uwerk, they make amazing different kinds of satellite movements. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, please Google U-R-W-E-R-K. Um, it seems that um, Gorilla made something like that at a democratized, democratized sorry, price. That, I, I've seen more of these uh, Kickstarter, watch crowd, uh, watch or crowdfunded watch projects, sorry. Um, I see more of that. So that's a little trend I'm noticing. And the, the trend I see, which is ironic, there is an anti-movement to all this complication and skeletonization and uh, rainbow dials, colors, cases, straps. Is less is more. We're going smaller, thinner, three-hand, and less is more. That's also a trend I'm seeing. And, and, and um, we're talking more about sustainability, which is very important. So... I don't think we've reached the end of the spectrum of 
technical innovation. Well, we're out there. We made full sapphire transparent cases, uh, colored sapphire cases. Um, we have uh, Uber Grand complications, spinning tourbillons, uh, th- 360 degree spinning cases, um, gyro tourbillons, uh, minute repeaters. Um, so we're out there. So that's what I want to answer. Rob? I, we didn't plan this, but what a wonderful segue into my answer. So you touched upon sustainability. And I think that as this becomes an ever more important thing in the industry, we're going to see complications and technical advancements focused very much on that. So I would expect that we will see a great deal of research into materials that increase the, that increase the necessary time between services so we saw some great concept movements a few years ago, actually using silicon instead of traditional ruby jewels or silicon bridges or so on and so forth. It doesn't really vibe with the nature of traditional watchmaking, but I think there's going to be a lot more research in that area. There's going to be plenty of second looks at technologies that were mooted 10 years ago, but dismissed because they perhaps weren't quite um, right for the time. Now that time might be about to come around. So I think that we'll see a lot of research into the sustainability. I think brands will become much more conscious of the footprint they leave behind. And technically speaking, I'm I'm all for an increase, a continued increase in power reserve and winding efficiency, which sounds super basic and very boring, but that's the kind of guy I am, you know. So um yeah, I'd like that. Very good one. It's, it's very 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 good and 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 both on uh, user friendliness, it's a lot of technical innovation, which is under the hood. You might not see it. One shout out I want to do, and this is especially for you, Jeroen, because Frédéric Constant, with its Dutch founders, worked with the university in Leiden, which is a Dutch city, and they created the monolithic, which is, I think, underappreciated, undervalued, and maybe very much unknown because Frédéric Constant are very modest. But it's an amazing technical innovation. And it links to your story, Rob. Yeah, exactly. Whether or not those kinds of uh, oscillators become mainstream popular or not remains to be seen. But I do think there's a great deal of potential for the powers of silicium to be harnessed and used in ways that haven't yet been either considered or perfectly refined for mass distribution. So watch this space. I imagine that we'll see a lot of work being done in those spheres in the years to come. So, as it turns out, four questions got us through an hour of recording, which was amazing. We still have tons in the bank, and please keep them coming. We like to mix it up. We love to hear from new listeners that have just discovered the podcast. Go back and listen to the early ones, of course. We have some great interviews in the bank already with Jean-Claude Biver, Ed Mayland, Xavier de Rocamorel, Laurent Ferrier. And we would love, 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 love to hear your suggestions of what we should do differently, what we can do better, how how we can improve, because we do want to grow with you as we continue on this journey together. If you want to ask a question, you can find us on Instagram, either at Rob Nuds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or at Alon Ben Joseph, that's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or you can send us a direct email at either Rob at therealtime.show or Alon at therealtime.show. We will be back on Thursday with a very special episode with our good friends from Fortis, which will be followed up by a special edition Q&A session on site with Fortis in the Arctic 
as they experiment with watchers in space the following Tuesday. So don't miss that double header. That is going to be something quite remarkable. Alon, I will see you in the virtual studio again very soon. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. professional ending that was.